KSL Court Report, Ben Anderson, Andy Larson. Andy, again, live in San Francisco, though if you're listening to this as a podcast, obviously it will not be live, uh, but Andy's still hanging out. After the Jazz lose game one, no major surprise to the Golden State Warriors. If you want to contact Andy, do so on Twitter, at Andy B. Larson. You can also hit me up on Twitter, at Ben K. Fan. Andy, uh, first of all, Jazz did media today, no shoot-around. They trying to conserve energy or is this just kind of they realize this is the best time that to just do media i'm sure they'll do a shoot around tomorrow and get ready for game two yeah i think that's that's pretty much their plan and trying to find uh, i think uh trying to find it they know kind of what happened in game one right it's all about kind of transition defense and and kind of being mentally more focused and more ready for the team and i think they felt like the best way to do that was look at what happened in game one rather than spend a lot of time trying to uh, you know go through stuff on the court necessarily so um it, it was it was more about you know focus and, and doing the right thing on the floor and kind of adjusting to a completely different style of opponent in, in the golden state warriors was there a stat or a you know something a reoccurring theme that you saw over and over that that jumped out to you from the jazz game one loss yeah i mean again just it to me it's transition defense you you look at the 29 pass break points the Warriors only averaged 22 um, per game this year. So even even by the Warriors' lofty standards, there was still a game where they got out in, in transition a lot. Uh, and then the Jazz only allowed 11 points per game in, in fast break points during the season. So again, 29 is huge compared to that even. So I think that's the biggest difference. And it's really kind of containing the ball after both live and dead ball turnovers after uh, made baskets and, and kind of slowing that down. Because honestly, I thought their half-court defense it was actually pretty promising. I didn't think the Jazz were bad. I mean, obviously there were issues, and that's what you're going to expect in Game 1 when you run into a buzzsaw like that, but I thought the Jazz were able to execute, and some of that is the Warriors allowing them to just kind of run their offense, and the Jazz got good looks. They missed a lot of shots. The hard part is if you miss shots, especially when they kind of bait you into taking those threes so you feel like you have an opportunity to stay in the game, if you miss that three and there's a long rebound, they're getting a layup on the other end, and that is something the Jazz need to sharpen up because they were able to slow down the Clippers even with Chris Paul because I think he's a little bit older because their team isn't so dynamic in transition with three-point shooters. Uh, That is something the Jazz now have to adjust to, and I think you're right. I mean, that's where that big... Uh, a stop needs to come for the Jazz coming up in Game Two if they want to have a chance to steal one of these first two games. Yeah, and it, and it happened, you know, over and over again. And so, again, half court defense, great transition defense, needs some improvement. And you get what because the Clippers aren't really a transition team without Blake Griffin. Uh, and you know, I, I think it, it's just a much harder challenge. Do you think? I was thinking about this actually when trying to write yesterday's article. Do you think the Warriors are the best transition team ever? I mean, I honestly, I was born in '86, so the Showtime Lakers that everyone talks about, and having a guy who's six foot nine running the point guard, I, I don't remember what they looked like game to game. But as far as teams in my life pressing off of any shot, I mean, make or miss, I remember the the seven seconds or less Suns. They certainly didn't seem this difficult because they weren't pulling up from thirty feet and hitting jumpers. I mean, that, that right. they weren't that deadly, and and those guys are always on their spots. They're just spread so perfectly, they're spaced perfectly. I, I mean, if it's not the Showtime Lakers and they weren't shooting threes like this, I mean, it's got to be the Warriors, and, and that's great. I mean, they, they don't even necessarily have you know a Bill Walton as an outlet passer or a Kevin Love to be more modern as an outlet passer. Everyone just grabs the ball and the first pass is to half court. Nobody passes to the three point line. There's certainly never a pack a pass backwards towards the basket. It's always an aggressive forward pass, so they've got the ball with 20 or 21 seconds left on the shot clock, and they're crossing half court every single time. Yeah, and it's you know it's just an incredibly difficult thing to stop. And 
Um, I, you know, some of that's just why the Warriors are, are the Warriors, and they're the you know the best team in the league this season, the best team in the league last season, and and how they are, who they are, and you know, why why we thought the Jazz would be um, thirteen point underdogs yesterday. And they covered. They only lost by twelve because of a late <laughs> push by who else other than Trey Lyles and Joel Ballenboy, which is what we all expected to come in and yeah. save the Jazz for all you gamblers out there. Uh, I I thought. I was surprised at how easy the Jazz were able to get what they wanted, at least on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, they scored 94 points, which obviously is not enough, uh, but they only gave up 106 points. That's not a terrible output, considering this Warriors team can put up 130. I thought the Jazz got a lot of good looks. I thought they needed to adjust to the the horizontal or lateral speed of the Warriors that the Clippers just didn't have, which is trying to throw ridiculous cross-court passes, skip passes that have no chance of getting through when you're playing against a team like the Warriors when they've got Draymond or they've got Steph Curry or they've got Andre Iguodala jumping passing lanes. And Joe Ingles did it. He's actually, Joe Ingles has been kind of bad. He's had rough three of the last four games, and I think that's something to keep an eye on for the Jazz if they decide they want to make more adjustments uh, on top of the one they did bringing Joe Johnson into the starting lineup. Uh, But that's what the, the big adjustment is. The Clippers are really dangerous vertically because they've got a guy in DeAndre Jordan who can catch lobs and block shots, and that makes it hard, and they're long. And even, you know, Luke Richard and Bob Mute was blocking shots on Gordon Hayward 18 feet from the hoop. That is not how the Warriors play. They're going to get into passing lanes, and when they go, they're gone. If they get that ball, they're going to get a layup on the other side, and it's just it's a total, totally different look than what you saw from the Clippers. Yeah, and, and then the Warriors are also, they just, they're really trying to make you go east-west more than, more than most teams. Yeah. I think that's really their major goal, right? So how they do it that, um, and, and they're so good at staying in front um, with their switching. And, it, you know, unlike the Clippers where the Jazz kind of welcome those switches, you get you get Joe Johnson on Jamal Crawford yeah. and you're pretty you're really happy with those kind of things. You get Joe Johnson on Clay Thompson and it's not an advantage, right? You just don't have it's, – it's not a good thing for your team. And it's even worse when you've got Kevin Durant or, or Draymond Green yeah. switching out on you. So trying to figure out how to attack the Warriors when they do that is, is – a big priority for the Jazz offensively. The nice thing is, though, when you do get north and south on them, if you can get into the paint, their rim protection, other than Draymond, who was averaging, what, four and a half blocks in the first round, something crazy like that, is Zaza Pachulia and JaVale McGee. And you saw last night the Jazz several times just went right into the chest of JaVale McGee. I mean, Gordon Hayward put him on his back because he's not going to stop you. He's not that. He's not Rudy Gobert. He's not that dangerous of a shot blocker despite his length, and that's the best opportunity. If you can get past your man and get him on your shoulder, just go all the way because they don't have a shot blocker other than Draymond if he can come over and help you to win. Uh, one of the interesting things that teams have done, you even saw the, uh, the Portland Trailblazers do it in the first round, is to try and go at Draymond directly. And if you have a player that can go at him directly and have success, you take him out of being where he's most dangerous, which is that help side guy. It's kind of traditionally going into the chest of a shot blocker, so he can't kind of be that help side shot blocker. I don't know if the Jazz have a player that's good enough to do that unless you wanted to see if Joe Johnson was strong enough. And I, I don't think he is. I think Draymond, uh, Draymond might be stronger than Joe Johnson. Yeah. And I think uh, it's a so, problem. And that, but look, I mean, I, I, I thought last night, in all honesty, despite the fact that it was a 20-point loss, even though they cut it to 12, I mean, they were down 20 for a majority of the fourth quarter, it felt pretty painless. There wasn't like this long eight-minute stretch where the Jazz couldn't score and they were just raining threes. They just got up the lead. They never let it go, and the game went really quickly, and, and, and it was over. It didn't feel horrifying if I'm a Jazz fan to watch, and I think that's probably the way the rest of the series is going to look. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of weird. Like, there weren't the 15-0 runs, but there was the there was a 9-0 run to begin the game. 
Uh, and then there was a, I think it was a 10-2 run to begin the second quarter and then another 8-0 run to begin the fourth quarter. And those were the, the big differences, right? Uh, and I think a couple of those you have to put on the bench. You know, they, they happened with Rudy Gobert out. Um, and, you know, David West was great in those. And, and the, again, these advantages that the Jazz had over the Clippers just don't exist against the Warriors. The Jazz don't have a better bench. And so, yeah, they, they ran into problems. Uh, and I think here's the nice part about that. It's not going to be as emotional as I think that first round series was with the Clippers, where it felt like two heavyweights just taking swinging haymakers at each other. I, I, that's not what this is going to feel like. I honestly think this series, I, I, it'd be fun to see if the Jazz can get a win or two when they come back home here. I'm not sure if that's the case. I think it'll be pretty painless, and I think you'll understand why it's painless because it's so obvious how much better the Warriors are than the Jazz, and that's okay. The Jazz weren't designed to compete with the Warriors this year. They were designed to do what they did, which was knock off the Clippers in the first round and then figure out how to adjust from there, and, and, and this is good experience, and I think I think you even saw that from Quinn Snyder with how much he put Boris Diaw out there. I mean, not Boris Diaw, Dante Exum, uh, how much he was able to put Trey Lyles out there late in the game and ball and boy. He's just he's fine with those guys getting experience in this atmosphere because I, I think he understands that the goal is not necessarily to try and push this to seven games because I don't think that's realistic. Right. Yeah, and I and I think that's probably probably smart to give those guys an opportunity, give your guys a little bit of a rest and heck, you know, they they performed well too, so it's it, uh, it it maybe makes it easier, especially on some of those guys who are kind of at that 80%, 90% as they are coming back from whatever nagging injury they have. Uh, anything else that jumped out to you from the game? I mean, the Jazz obviously going to have to play much better. The Warriors didn't shoot well, and that's terrifying yeah. because if they shoot well, maybe that is a 35-point game. Maybe that is a 40-point game, and, and we could see one of those in this series. Yeah, I think there's that. Um, I also think the uh, Rodney Hood's performance I thought was interesting in that he missed all of his outside shots over four from three, but was six for 12 anyway because he was you know, six for eight from inside the arc, but he kind of took advantage of some mismatches. Um, the, the Warriors weren't afraid to leave him, and he, he kind of drove the pain a little bit, which I thought was interesting, um, and, and finished at the rim, which is something that we haven't really seen much of in Rodney Hood's career. So I, I, I thought that was encouraging. Um, and then really, I guess we haven't talked about Gordon Hayward yet, who, you know, I, I think he struggled, but I thought he struggled in ways that um, were not particularly worrying for me as, as, a, as a Jazz fan. I agree. Uh, and again, going back to the emotional part of this game, if the Jazz had lost the first round series, the taste in your mouth from that, if you were Gordon Hayward, might have pushed you towards a Boston team or a Miami team, and it still may, uh, whatever happens in the offseason. I don't feel like a loss to the Warriors is going to leave that type of a taste in your mouth, even if you lose 4-0 and the average margin of victory is 12 points. Because you just you know what the Warriors are. Gordon Hayward can't look at that team and say, we should be better than that team. Because they don't have Kevin Durant, and they don't have Steph Curry, and they don't have Draymond Green. There's no reason why the Jazz should be better than that. And maybe we haven't seen the best of the Warriors. It would be nice if the Jazz can, can keep these games this close, where you had it down to single digits in the fourth quarter before they went on that run and pushed it up to 20 points. Uh, but but I'm not sure we're going to see it. I would think you could you could almost guarantee that when they're here in Salt Lake City because I think the Jazz are going to have some momentum and I think they'll play well here. But Game 2 might be just as ugly or, or kind of just as lopsided as Game 1 was. So, so counterpoint, because you brought up Hayward, if, you know, if the Jazz lose 4-0, um, what about, you know, why, why does he stay? What, you know, why, do, why does he think he can ever uh, surpass what the Warriors are doing in the next four years? Well, what the Jazz have to do, obviously, and, and this is going to be a good conversation for the offseason, is they're going to have to go out and fire, uh, add some firepower. 
I mean, they, they are going to have to go out and get another guy who's a legit third star because they don't have it. They've got Gordon, and he's a legit star. They've got Rudy, and he's a legit star. And they don't have that other guy. And as good as George Hill is, he's just not that person. He's never going to be a star. He's not an all-star. He's really solid, and you like that about him. Joe Johnson's aging. But you've even seen, when you have a guy like Joe Johnson who knows how to get his shot off, how much easier that makes Gordon Hayward's life. If you can go out and trade for a guy like that in a place where he's duplicated on another team or another team says we have to back out of some contracts and we're willing to give up a player to do that, that's where I think there's some interest from Gordon Hayward to stick around and build a team and understand that you know this Warriors team, Steph is going to get a Supermax contract this offseason. Kevin Durant's going to get a Supermax contract this offseason. Okay, well, those two alone now are making $70 million or nearly $70 million. They're just not going to be able to afford to keep everyone on that roster, and they will become more and more imperfect as time goes on. And Steph Curry's not 24. Like, I think there's this, this feeling about him. He's, what, 28? Almost 29. He's 29. So he's getting to that point where, yeah, he's in his he's in his prime, but it's not going to last five more years. I mean, it's going to last a couple more years, and the Warriors are going to be unbeatable over that stretch. But maybe you want to stay here because, you know, pick your poison. Is it the Warriors or is it LeBron and the Cavs because LeBron's made seven straight finals in the East? I mean, nobody right. has success there. And look at Boston. I mean, I read a good article this morning on Boston. What do you do with a guy like Isaiah Thomas who scored 50-plus points last night? Do you give him... $30 million when you're going to draft Markel Fultz or Lonzo Ball with the first two picks uh, in the draft like, this year? I feel like you probably have to, right? Like, And then you're stuck with the worst defensive player in the NBA as your go-to score, and maybe you trade him in the future and maybe you're able to do that and you can get another piece back, and, and that's Danny Ainge's plan all along. But if you do that, you're going to start losing other free agents along the way. Marcus Smart, you're not going to be able to afford. Uh, you're not going to be able to pay Avery, Bra- Avery Bradley. And then all of a sudden that team's not that exciting, and they still don't have a rim protector. I mean, there are flaws on every single one of these teams, and those teams are also going to look at Jimmy Butler before they look at Gordon Hayward or Paul George before they look at Gordon Hayward if they can get those guys into trade. Miami's going to talk to Blake Griffin to see if they can bringing a big guy to play alongside uh, Dion Waiters and, and, and whatever roster they can put together this offseason. I think there are still places where we might find that Gordon Hayward doesn't have all these destinations that it sounds like he might. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of always been maybe the biggest point in favor of Utah. Is, you know, besides that he's comfortable here, I think it just makes sense. Uh, that the other situations aren't, like, markedly better. It's not so obvious. I mean, maybe Boston is so obvious. Uh, And if they can make a run to the finals this year and get past the Cavs, which if they played like they did last night and they've got a superstar in Isaiah Thomas, maybe they can get there. But there are questions that they have to answer, and and they can't blow this draft pick, and Danny Ainge has done that a couple of times now. And we'll we'll see what that turns into. Uh, I I think you're right. If If you get killed by the Warriors here, I mean, there's certainly going to be a point of hopelessness with what Gordon Hayward thinks about where he's signing. But, you know, in the East, he gets to play LeBron or he gets to figure out what they're going to do in the offseason, who they add, if they can bring in another superstar. So uh, he's going to have to pick his poison one place or another. And maybe then you just choose weather over all of it. and You just want to be warm while you're making, you know, <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Uh yeah, and I, you know that's well, well, like like you say, we'll talk more about Hayward's decision. But I, I do think um, staying within reaching distance of this Warriors team, I, I think, does matter a little bit. You know, kind of like the difference between getting the four or the five seed, or um, you know, beating the Clippers or losing to the Clippers and stuff. And I, you know, I think those make a difference in, in Hayward's decision. Absolutely. And uh, but, but you know what? Look around. Look at the other teams in the West as well. I mean, you might be looking at a rebuild in San Antonio. Even though they were really good this year and the machine won 60 games, 
if they are going to be that old on the perimeter and not be able to keep up with what Houston is doing, I mean, if they can't do this to Houston, imagine what Golden State would do to them. I mean, they would right. really be in trouble. And so you're going to have a few teams in the Western Conference that really have to step back and look at themselves. We know the Clippers are already there. I think San Antonio, if they lose tonight, is going to have to do it in this offseason. And the Jazz are going to be in a funny situation where they can either try and keep this gang together or Dennis Lindsay can swing for the fences, which he has yet to do, and say, we're going to go out and we're going to chase a C.J. McCollum and see what package we can put together to get him and then by doing that, that covers the money we were going to give to George Hill. You trade up with Rodney Hood, and you try and get a better draft pick, and, and that cheapens your salary cap, and then you have room to make more moves. I think Dennis Lindsay obviously has a contingency plan here in place to impress Gordon Hayward before he even hits the free agent market, and you try and do that on draft night. And then if you don't, you have several different free agents to look at and trades to make to try and bring those guys in. And, and that's how the Jazz are going to have to chase Gordon Hayward, I think regardless of what happens in this series, unless the Jazz were to win and somehow go on to win a finals and which case Gordon Hayward would be a lock to come back. Yeah. I, I, one thing I was thinking of reading when I was reading Zach Lowe's article today on the Spurs is if, if they all of a sudden make LaMarcus Aldridge available, is he, is he a good fit next to Rudy Gobert? He's certainly interesting from his ability to sit out at 19 feet and hit jump shots, 20 feet and hit jump shots, because you saw how good Favors was when he's able to do that, even if he's just a counterpuncher to what Rudy does. But you could start LaMarcus Aldridge, and right now you can't start uh, Derek Favors because he's not consistent enough with that shot. He's not fast enough with that. But yeah, if you can get LaMarcus Aldridge and go out and trade a couple of pieces to get him, I, I think you pull that trigger because he's the third best player on this team instantly, and then you have a really pretty good big three because Rudy Gobert covers up so much of what he does poorly. Yeah. Anyway, I was just thinking out loud there, but that's you know something that I uh, considered earlier today was just, huh, I wonder if that may be an option because I think you're right, swinging for the fences is, is a smart move or at least is a possible move this summer if, if you want to impress Hayward. Plus, you don't want to waste four years of Rudy Gobert. You, right. you know, just because you lose Gordon Hayward doesn't mean that you, you go back to a four-year rebuilding plan. It doesn't make sense to pay Rudy Gobert $25 million a season to be on a team that's designed to win 25 games. That just makes absolutely no sense, and you're, I don't think you're going to trade Gobert. So you try and stay as competitive as possible. You hope a James Harden-type deal pops up if you're Houston, you know, when they were able to make that trade, and you go out and get him, whether it's a Damian Lillard or whether it's a C.J. McCollum or, or whoever you want to name. Maybe it's an Isaiah Thomas. You know, maybe at some point Boston needs to get rid of him, and the Jazz say, well, we've got the room and we've got a draft pick we'll give for you, and, and you've got Markel Fultz who needs to step over and take over as the number one guy. We'll happily be that team for you. So yeah. th that's how you rebuild this team going forward. But the Jazz still have game two to look forward to. Uh, any more adjustments to the starting lineup, or do you think they like this with Joe Johnson at the four? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes sense, and you know, maybe maybe they go a little bit. The problem is the Jazz just don't have that much speed, right? Like that's what that's the problem with putting Boris in the starting lineup is uh, Draymond will just run past him on every transition opportunity. Yep. So the idea is Joe Johnson gives you a little bit more, but it's not like Joe Johnson is is fast either. So I, I think part part of it is just. The personnel the Jazz have aren't great answers for the Warriors. Um, so I, I kind of expect to stay with what they've got. I thought Joe Ingles did a pretty good job on Clay Thompson last night, honestly. Um, and, you know, Rodney Hood played well off the bench. So yeah. I, I liked what uh, that looked like, I guess. Or at least we'll, we'll probably see this for one more game, I would imagine. Uh, Shelvin Mack got 21 minutes last night, six points. Yeah, that's too many. Seven rebounds, that's a lot of minutes for him. But the Jazz look like they're pretty dedicated to putting uh, Dante Exum at the two. I mean, they look like they're going to move forward with him as a shooting guard, at least for the rest of the season, because of his length, because of his athleticism, and because you just don't want him to have to think as much as he's been forced to think. Uh, so how do you adjust that? Just try and keep uh, George Hill on the floor more? 
Well, and you have to. I, I don't think you can have Mac matched up against Curry. I think you have to mirror George Hill's minutes with Steph Curry if you're going to do that because Mac just doesn't have a chance. I mean, I, I thought the Warriors took advantage of that to like two points per possession last night, and it could have been three points yeah. with with how he was playing. And and Mac was okay offensively, but you know, I, I just don't know that that's that's a good look for the Jazz. I, I you know, I honestly think playing Dante at the one, even though it's got all sorts of weird offensive challenges with it. And Dante didn't do great defensively either. He died on yeah. a few screens. That was that was why Rudy Gobert got matched up for that, you know, one-on-one right. embarrassment that happened in, in late in the second quarter. Um, I, I just think that it, you have to figure out some more tenable way. Maybe it's Howell Neto, you know, I don't know. But uh, the, the defensive side of the ball matters, and, and Mac uh, leaves something to be desired there. We'll see if the Jazz are willing to go back to Trey Lyles earlier in the rotation. If he finds a shot, the Jazz uh, can certainly I mean, use his shot making. But uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think we'll see it. Hey, maybe Ball and Boy. Uh, hey, I, I'm I, okay. I have to say, I did not understand the Ball and Boy pick when they did it. I thought, what, are they just trying to be nice to kind of a local kid? And then they signed him to the main team and kept him around, and and he never played. And I just did not understand what was going on there. But you see him on the floor, and he's he's on a different wavelength than everyone. He's just a freak athlete. Uh, he's so underdeveloped as a basketball player. I mean, he just moves weird, but he is yeah. he is a crazy athlete. He really can jump out of the gym. He's got nice touch. I think he kind of innately does have a feel for the game that needs to be honed in a little bit. And as Matt Harpring said, he's he's got a little bit of Dennis Rodman in him, and, and that, that's true. He's just he's a weird type of player, but he knows how to get different spots on the floor, and if he gets the ball, he's got one idea, and that's go and dunk it. And I, I, I like that in players. Yeah, and I, I like. I, I think he's a lottery. And when I say lottery pick, I don't mean in the usual way. I mean, right. uh, you know, he's 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 going to be pretty boomer bust in terms of right. you know maybe his size and, and athleticism works out, and maybe it doesn't. But it's probably a better pick than say Marcus Page, who uh, whose just athleticism is going to limit him, and then lack of size is going to limit him his entire career. Right, and ball and boy, yeah, he's got he's got everything other than the game. <laughs> right. And so now if you can teach him the game, maybe you have something that's a great steal at, what, number 59 or 60, wherever the Jazz ended up picking him. Yeah, 50. The, the Jazz, 52, uh, whatever. The Jazz lose game one to Golden State, game two coming up tomorrow. We will have another podcast for you tomorrow where we break down a little bit more of what to expect in game two for the Jazz. If you'd like to sponsor the show, email Andy at alarson at ksl.com, or you can tweet at him at Andy B. Larson. You can also tweet at me at Ben K. Fan. And we're going to be back with you coming up tomorrow with another podcast as Andy is in San Francisco getting you ready for game two between the Jazz and the Warriors. So make sure you tune into that. Catch it on Stitcher. You can also find it at ksl.com. It is the KSL Court Report. Andy, thanks for jumping on. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Sounds good.